In chapter 5, we're teaching this morning verses 1 through 6. Please pay close attention to the Word of God. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous person who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Let's pray. Father God, we know that we stand before you as human beings who have been changed by the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for Tom's teaching. We pray for your spirit to speak to our spirits, to mold us and shape us to become more like the Lord Jesus because it's for his glory, we pray. Amen. Good morning. If you guys missed either of uh, Bob's messages over the last two weeks, I would strongly encourage you to get online, communitybible.org slash sermons, and listen to those messages. They were powerful, uh, powerfully presented messages of grace. I think that uh, in all of our experience in our earthly lives, there are a few things <laughs> that that have the ability either to attract us or to repel us as decisively as a really strong smell. And many of us can readily think of smells in both those categories. It shouldn't surprise us that since you know, we're created in the image of God, it shouldn't surprise us that Paul, in chapter 5 of Ephesians and the first couple of verses, describes the walk that is worthy of our high calling in Christ in terms of how it smells to God, right? He begins in verses 1 and 2 by saying, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Now that that idea of fragrant aroma is uh, is a very powerful concept in the Bible. The uh, <laughs> this this passage ends up being, I, as I see it, a tale of two smells <laughs> and, and of two walks. The first the first is the pleasing, fragrant aroma of Christ-like love. And the second is the offensive stench of Christless lust. In that first and second verse, when Paul speaks of 
the offering that is sacrificed up to God as a soothing and fragrant aroma, he's pointing back to an Old Testament concept that, again, is very powerful. He's actually pointing back to one particular category of the sacrifices. I mentioned this last week, but I want to expand on it just a bit. Of all the types of sacrifices in the Old Testament, all of which Christ fulfilled at the cross, there's one that most often is referred to by God as a soothing aroma in his nostrils, and that's the whole burnt offering. And here's how the whole burnt offering worked. An Israelite would take the very finest bull or male goat from his herd or flock, and he would bring it to the entrance to the tabernacle. And with the, high, with the priest standing before him, the offerer would lay his hands on the head of that animal in order to signify his identification with the animal. And from that point forward, everything that happened to that animal was supposed to picture what was happening with that man and with the heart of that man. The priest would take the animal, he would slay it, he would pour out its blood, he would sprinkle that blood on the altar to signify the offering up of the life of that animal to God. And also, of course, picturing the atonement that ultimately would be provided by Christ. And then, then he would, he would remove the, the skin of the animal and he would take the entire animal and put it up on the altar to be consumed by God's holy fire. Now that was the only sacrifice of all the categories of offerings in the Old Testament in which neither the priest nor the offerer got to eat a portion of the animal. God was the only one who consumed that animal, and he got all of it. See, the whole burnt offering was a picture of dedication of the entire self to God. And in Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2, Paul says that when Jesus died on the cross in our place, that that was a sacrifice, an offering to his Father as a fragrant aroma. It was Christ laying himself on the altar entirely for his Father and for our sakes. That's Christ's whole, whole offering. Our dedication is really the point of those two verses. See, Paul is not just telling us what Christ did. He's telling us what Christ did so we'll know what we are to do. This whole section of Ephesians is about us living out the amazing grace that God has lavished upon us in Christ. And so (laughs) he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. He's saying, you do that. You do what he did. Now, you and I can't duplicate the substitutionary atonement for our sins that Jesus accomplished at the cross. We cannot pay the infinite debt that we owed to God because of our sin. Only Jesus could do that. He had to be perfect man and perfect God. And he did that, and he finished it, because when his last words at the cross were, it is finished. It's really one word in Greek. So 
that payment's been done. And by the way, if you're here this morning and you have not trusted only in that person and that incomparable payment for your sin, then your sin is still on you. And if you die with your sin still on you, you will be eternally condemned. That's not a popular thing to say these days, but the Bible is is not unclear about it at all. On the other hand, if you put your faith in that person and in that perfect payment, you will have eternal life with God and with the people of God forever. What's very interesting about these first two verses is that is what our dedication of our whole selves to God looks like. We don't get to repeat Christ's substitutionary atonement, but we do get to imitate Christ's love. The love that drove Jesus to that cross is the same love that God commissions us as His beloved children to pour out upon others. And specifically in this passage and in these three chapters, chapters 4 through 6 of Ephesians, to pour out that love on one another within the body of Christ. That's what this is about. This is about how we love each other. And by the way, the the very strong connection between our dedication of our whole selves to God and how we live in the body of Christ toward each other is also very directly established in Romans chapter 12. That chapter begins with with the command, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, in other words, on the basis of God's outrageous grace and mercy toward us, I urge you therefore, brethren, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. And then he goes on in that chapter to give us a bunch of one another commands. Romans 12 is one of the most densely populated passages in the New Testament about how we are to live out our relationship with each other in the body of Christ. And that's because that's, that is our dedication of our whole self to God. Now, now some of you may be thinking that, uh, <laughs> that that sacrifice of our whole self it has to be a lot more than that, and I would agree. But, but this passage focuses on our love for each other as that whole offering itself. And, and if you think that that is too insular, if you think that that means that the church is going to be too much about itself, I would, I would nudge you back to something that we saw earlier in Ephesians, and that is the how... <laughs> How God ends up filling everything in His creation with Christ. First, chapter 3 verses 14 to 19 and chapter 4 verse 7, Christ fills every believer with Himself. And then, He fills His church with Himself. He gives gifts of the Spirit to each believer so that we will all be brought together interdependently and Through every person in the church, He will build up His body into one mature man, and that man is Jesus. And then, having filled His church with Himself, He overflows Christ into the world. And He draws many others into that 
relationship, that union with Jesus Christ. But He does it, beloved, He does it through His church. Yes, through individual believers, but but fundamentally, the power center for God's population of His kingdom is what He does through His church in the world. And so, for us to love one another well as our dedication of self to God, that's how God equips that power center to draw many to faith in Jesus Christ, to fill up all creation with Himself. In chapter 5, verses 3 through 6, Paul goes from a very forceful, positive command to walk in love just as Christ loved us to a very forceful, negative command. And he gives us three things that that we are to put as far away from us as we can get them. And they are immorality, impurity, and greed. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul says that of all the don'ts and do's that we tend to come up with to, to satisfy God, that they mean nothing. In fact, he says, he says all the do's and don'ts about what to eat and what not to eat and what days to celebrate as holy and all these things that we get all obsessed about, he says that's fake religion. It's of no value against fleshly indulgence. So when that same Paul gives us three things that we are to avoid, like the plague, we should be paying attention. Because Paul's not going to mislead us. He's not going to lead us into, into prohibitions that don't actually affect godliness and don't actually build up the church. These are very important. The first is immorality. And immorality, to put it simply, is it's from the word, the, the Greek word is porneia. It's the word from which we get pornography. It has a fairly broad application in the New Testament, uh, but it is all about sexual sin. Immorality is sex, anything pertaining to sex, that denies God's design for sex. And, and guys, contrary to popular belief, God's design for sex is actually very straightforward. It's, it's not ambiguous. See, God's design for sex was laid out in Genesis chapter 2. He said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And that one flesh is an earthly picture of the union between Christ and His church that design's pretty straightforward. And what amazes me is that just in this generation, for the first time really in human history, the very institutions of culture have decided that that design is very unclear. That marriage is, is very unclear. And, and what's really perplexing is that when you go to the first page of most of your Bibles in Genesis 1, and God says... In our image, we created man, the triune God. He said, male and female, He created them. Male and female. That's binary. 
Just ones and zeros. Right? Guys, God has never been confused about the genders. Mankind can go every direction that they choose to, and we're up to, I think, 50 gender identities. God has never been confused about the genders, and there have always been exactly two of them. God gave sex to mankind, and His design is very, very limited. In fact, many people in this room are excluded from God's design for sex. Either right now, maybe for part of your life, some of you maybe for the rest of your life. That doesn't mean that God is not gracious to those who can't have sex on His terms. But, but, but what it does mean is that if you, if you have sex on anybody else's terms, you will not be blessed by God. You will be the object of His judgment. That may be a temporary judgment, or if you persist in rejecting Christ, it may, you're already judged. God is not confused about any of this. The first thing that, that we are to flee from with everything that we can muster is immorality and by the power of God. And then the second thing is impurity. And what is impurity? Well, the word used for impurity here is the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament word for uncleanness. And, and that's a very misunderstood word. Again, it actually is fairly simple in reality, what it, what it refers to. Uncleanness is everything that, that sets aside purity of devotion to God. It is the focus on worldly things instead of Godish things. Okay. A, a really good passage for understanding what impurity is about is Colossians 3 verses uh, 1 through 3. Look at that for a minute. It was actually mentioned, I think, this morning. It says, If then you have been raised up with Christ, and Paul said that we were in chapter 2, we who believe in Him, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. He's seated at the right hand of God, at the Father. And then he says, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So, purity is a life, a walk of life, a way of living that is focused on your relationship with God, your union with Christ. And impurity is a way of life that is focused on the things that are cursed or sinful. Okay. And that, that's pretty broad. I mean, there's a lot of things that fall into that category. That might mean that you are indeed obsessed with sex on your own terms. It might mean that you're obsessed with your children. It, it might mean that you're obsessed with money. It might mean that you're obsessed with politics. The point is, if your focus is on things of this world that will not persist after you breathe your last breath, after God has done with this creation and has replaced it with the new creation, that's impurity. Okay? The third, the third thing that Paul says we are to 
put aside with extreme prejudice is greed. And, and greed is fundamentally uh, the burning desire to have whatever you don't have. And, and greed is perfectly happy to take it from somebody else if they have it. Greed kind of bleeds over into both of these other categories. In fact, uh, greed is also translated, the word's also translated covetousness. And if you look at the tenth of the Ten Commandments, the prohibition against coveting, you'll notice that, that uh, adultery is in there. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not covet anything else of your neighbor's. So these things are not, they're not all separated. They're all part of really the same thread that exists in the heart of fallen man and in the old nature for us who have been redeemed. And that common thread is lust. It's lust. Lust is fundamentally the burning desire to do the things that violate the character of God. It's the desire in the inner man to sin. And lust is very powerful and in many people it has a very deep it has very deep roots unfortunately in many believers it's very very stubborn in its uh, in hanging on even when we've been freed from it when we're freed from the power of sin uh, it's it's a habit some people would say okay well lust is not sin lust is the precursor to sin and they would go to James uh chapter 1 verses 14 and 15. Let's read that for a minute. Just want to clarify this. James says, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then he says, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Now you look at that and you might think, okay, well then James is saying that lust is not sin. But I got to tell you, he is absolutely not saying that. If he were saying that, then Jesus would have been badly misinformed in Matthew 5 when he said, you've heard that it is said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, anyone who looks upon a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. The sin has occurred in the heart. hasn't even gotten outside yet. Now, James is not contradicting Jesus. James is making the simple point that, that sin in the inner man, when it is indulged and fed and camped out on, will always lead to sin in the outer man. Both are sin, and either one condemns. And that, beloved, is why pornography is not a victimless sin. Pornography, guys, is like pouring jet fuel on sexual lust and then igniting it with a propane torch. It is so grievously destructive. And God God intends for those who are His children by His amazing grace to put all of these things as far away from us as they can be put. 
In verse 4, Paul expands on the unworthy walk, the walk that's not worthy of our calling, by extending it to what comes out of our mouths, by how we talk. He says, there must be no no filthiness and silly talk or coarse joking, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. I got to tell you, I never would have thought that by this time in my life, I would hear kids speaking the way that they do without any kind of restraint. There is nothing shocking left in the world. There is no word that isn't commonplace. And what's really, really distressing is when we see our brothers and sisters in Christ just kind of letting this whole thing slip. There are times... um, There are times when we seem to act as if, as if, as, as long as we don't actually carry out the things that we're talking about, it's okay to talk about. But in Ephesians 4.29, Paul said, let no rotten word get past your lips. But only such a word as is good for building up according to the, to, to the need of the moment that it may give grace to those who hear. God intends for us to be mindful of the words that come out of our mouths. Because those words either tear down or they build up. And, and I need to heed this along with all the rest of you. There's so many times when we let this slip. And that applies to all kinds of speech. Foolish talk includes, I believe it includes gossip. It includes our, our so-called prayer requests that really are just gossip. It certainly includes the sexual innuendo, the crudeness, you know, the junior high locker room humor that gets out of some of especially our male mouths. God intends for, for that which comes out of our mouths to reflect His beauty and His character. And so that's something we need to be thinking about and mindful of. Paul says, of all these things, immorality, impurity, greed, filthiness, foolish talk, coarse jesting, he he says, don't even let them be named among you. He doesn't say, do them less than you used to. He doesn't say, say these kinds of things less than you used to and you'll be good with God. No, he says, don't even let them be named among you. The church is supposed to be pure. It's supposed to be yielded to Christ. It's supposed to reflect Christ. God knows that we all are struggling with these things. His forbearance, we can't even compare whatever forbearance we come up with with His forbearance toward us. But He's serious about this. And what's really beautiful is that if we do these things, to the extent that we do these things, Christ is put on display in the world. And the worse the culture gets, the more powerfully His light shines through us when we live His way. 
And when the culture is as ours now is, if we're doing these things, we're going to stand out like a sore thumb. And God's going to use that. And see, that's the upside of all this. God doesn't give us these prohibitions to put us under His thumb. He gives us these prohibitions in order that we may share His holiness. In order that we may show Him off. In order that we may be be useful to the living God to expand His kingdom on earth. What child of the living God doesn't want that? If we walk in Christ-like love, especially in Christ-like love toward each other in the body of Christ, our lives, our walk will be a delightful aroma in the nostrils of God. Our lives will build up the household of God. Our lives will adorn the message that He left us here to proclaim instead of burying it under a pile of garbage. Why must we... uh, Why must we put all these things away from us? Paul says they are not proper among saints. He says they are not fitting. And then he says something in verses 5 and 6 that that I believe has been kind of misconstrued by many. And you don't have to agree with me on this, but I'm going to give you my take on it. He says, for this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. You notice the nouns he sets forth there. No immoral person, no impure person, no greedy person. He's talking about people whose identity is connected with these sins. That's who they are. That's their nature. Okay? And those people have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God until and unless God saves them. And then he says, let no one deceive you with empty words. And there are a lot of those around. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. There are two phrases in verse 6 that should sound familiar to us if we've been paying attention earlier in the book. Especially the phrase... Sons of disobedience. The other one is the wrath of God. But sons of disobedience occurs only twice in the whole Bible. And the other occurrence is in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2. And what's going on there? Well, that's where Paul is talking about what we used to be before God saved us. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. In any time in the Bible, Old or New Testament, that you see sons of or son of or child of or children of, and it's not followed by the name of somebody, what it means is people characterized by this thing. Sons of disobedience are sons whose nature is to disobey God. Children of wrath are people who are destined to receive the wrath of God. And Paul says, that's what you all once were. That's what He says, that's what I once was. That's what we all once were. 
Here in chapter 5, Paul's saying, you know what happens to those people if they stay in that nature? They receive the eternal judgment of God. And so when people hit you with deceptive words that say these things are really okay, your response would be, no, should be, no, these are the things that guarantee the condemnation of all men and all women until and unless we come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so, to take them lightly, to take them lightly is the height of foolishness. It is the most destructive thing that a human being can do to himself or to another person is to call sin righteousness. The most unloving thing, I've said this before, but the most unloving thing that you will ever do to another person is to tell them that their sin is not sin. Because if you do, you are at the very least watering down their need for Jesus to save them. And at the very worst, you're just negating that need. The world says, oh, if you talk about sin and righteousness and judgment, you're intolerant. And God says, no, you are loving. There's nothing more loving that you can do for another person than to be the vessel of the Holy Spirit whose work on earth is to, is to convict men of sin and righteousness and judgment and to proclaim redemption in Jesus Christ alone so that people can be saved. And so Paul, <laughs> Paul says, don't be deceived when people say these things are okay with God. They violate our nature. They violate our identity. They violate the character and the purity and the beauty and the holiness of the living God. And they're not okay. And so Paul is saying, be who you are, not who you aren't. And that becomes real clear in the, in the next passage, which we'll get to next week, because he says, you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the world. See, if Paul's pur- I'll just I'll add this. If Paul's purpose in verses 5 and 6 was to smoke out those who erroneously considered themselves to be Christians and to do so on the basis of their lousy performance, then he did a really bad job of it. Because look at the exhortations that lead up to verses 5 and 6. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Be kind-hearted to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love just as Christ loved you and gave Himself up for us. If his purpose was to smoke out the unbelievers, he did a crummy job. Guys, there will always be unbelievers mixed in with believers in in the community of, of the faith. But this book was not written to them. This book was written to us so that we will tell them the truth about God and about us in order that men may be saved. This is God's letter to His people. 
And absolutely, this epistle is written to the people of God. All right. How do we move from stench to fragrance? We all struggle with these things. And there are some very smelly things in every one of our lives. There's a a marvelous contrast that Paul sets up here in verses 3 and 4. On one side of that contrast, you have immorality, impurity, and greed, and, and foolish talk, and coarse talk, and sexual innuendo, and all the things that are repugnant and smelly to God. And on the other side, you have one thing. Just one thing. <laughs> and that singular, powerful counterpoint to all that smelly stuff is but rather giving of thanks. Giving of thanks. Where does lust come from? Discontent. Thanklessness. Where did the decline of man come from? Well, in Romans 1, Paul says they refused to honor God as God and give thanks. One of the most powerful characteristics, one of the most defining characteristics of the children of God is that we are thankful because we know what we deserved and we know what we've been given. And and by the way, when you run into someone who professes to be a Christian and you don't see any gratitude in their lives, take them back to the Gospel and find out what they really believe. In fact, ask them what they deserve from God. Because if their answer is anything other than I deserve eternal condemnation, they don't get it. They don't get it. And when they do, when they realize that they deserve to to burn in hell forever because of their violation of the character of their holy God, and that and if they have trusted in Christ and they actually get the fact that they deserve that and instead He gave them eternal relationship with, with God in His presence, in perfection of, of all provision forever, you cannot get that and not have any gratitude. It, it, it's not even, it doesn't make any sense. We are, we are instruments of God in each other's lives to point each other, to pull each other back to thankfulness. To thankfulness. And so when, when we're distracted and when we're, when we're we bounced over into that realm of impurity where we're so focused on worldly things that we forget whose we are and what we've been given. We forget about the unfathomable riches of Christ. We forget that God has lavished His grace upon us like a waterfall. Then, beloved, we have to tell each other to come back and look again. This is fundamental to our assignment as children of God, but rather giving of thanks. And and by the way, in this context, it's not just what you do in your prayer closet, is it? 
He just talked about all these wretched kinds of speech. And then he says, but rather giving a thanks. See, he's talking about, guys, he's talking about thanking God out loud. He's talking about thanking God in the congregation of God's people and in in your ministry groups and when you're one-on-one with another believer who's struggling and when you're trying to give godly admonition to a struggling couple or to someone who is ill, perhaps mortally ill, who is a brother or sister in Christ, he's saying, give thanks out loud. Praise God. Acknowledge the goodness and the faithfulness of God all the time. God intends for us to do this for one another. He brought us together and He made us interdependent. And He intends for us to build each other up in the true knowledge of God. And we can't do that if we're not thankful. There is life-changing, transforming power in your thankful words by the work of the Holy Spirit. We live in a world that is discontented, ungrateful, angry, constantly, constantly in turmoil. And and God put us in this world and we get to say, it is well with my soul. And it can be well with your soul. Brothers and sisters, let's appeal to one another's new identity and nature and destiny as we did this morning in the worship. Let's remind each other continually that the anchor of our souls is the hope that God has given to us in Jesus Christ that nobody can take away from us. This is uh, fundamentally about our calling, isn't it? It's about our calling. See, our calling is whose we are and what we, we have been given. Our calling is chapters 1-3. through three. Our calling is that we who have trusted in Jesus Christ alone have been made the everlasting objects of God's boundless grace. That's what's true of us. And so that tells us, that tells us how well it is with our souls. And it tells us what we need to be doing to build one another up. If we're not shy about giving voice to our gratitude to God, we'll have plenty to talk about. I think, I think some of us think that if we, if we actually started speaking about the things that honor God, we wouldn't have much to say. And the reality is, we would never stop having things to say. <laughs> because His grace is a waterfall. And that, beloved, that is the walk that goes up into the nostrils of God as a fragrant aroma. Pray with me. Father, we ask that You would relentlessly work in us to make these things controlling in our life. This reality. Father, we ask that You would you would never stop molding us and refining us, even when that refiner's furnace is so hot we don't think that we can stand it any longer. We ask, Lord, that You would conform us to Christ in order that we would walk in a manner worthy of our outrageously high calling in Him. 
that we would show Him off in this world with thoughts and words and actions that look like Him. Father, we know that You're the only one who can do that. That's why Paul prayed the prayers that he prayed in the first half of this book. We are utterly dependent on You. We, we hear and we heed these things and we, we desire to do the things that please You, but Father, we are utterly dependent on You. So we come to You and we say, fill us up and change us. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.